From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Today is Monday, December 24th. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. On our program today, we remember a Syrian-born man who transformed the global art market. Also, why some singles in South Korea went on a giant blind date today. And Catholics in Israel celebrate Christmas in the Hebrew language, despite the linguistic challenges. If you go around in the streets of Israel and you talk about that man from Nazareth, the word that is used is not his name, but an acronym, an abbreviation of a very polemical curse against him. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com, and by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters Friday. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. United Nations Peace Envoy Lakhdar Brahimi went to Syria today, and he met with President Bashar al-Assad in an effort to find a way to end the bloody civil war there. The opposition says more than 40,000 people have died in Syria since the fighting erupted nearly two years ago. This past weekend saw some of the most horrific violence. A line of people waiting to buy bread were hit by an airstrike. The Syrian government blamed the carnage on terrorists. Borzu Dergahi is covering events in Syria for the Financial Times. He is in Beirut. Borzu, what hope is there, if any, for peace in Syria anytime soon? You know, it, it seems like we've really gotten past the point of no return here. Um, I think that peace will be achieved uh, at this point when one side is the victor. It seems like you've, you've got a situation where both sides are pretty confident that they will either win or perish trying to win. And this is not a situation that's conducive to a negotiated settlement. So what does Brahimi say he accomplished there then? He hasn't accomplished much at all, except sort of shuttling between various bodies, various government officials, uh, various uh, diplomats and so on. I mean, I think many cynics would say that he's basically providing diplomatic cover for the international community to do very little and to pretend they're doing something. Well, many officials on the outside, including U.S. officials, believe that uh, Syria's president needs to leave the scene, that Bashar al-Assad either has to have a quick or a negotiated exit from Syria. If, if that were to happen, would there be any guarantee that the two sides would come together? Uh, or has this turned now into a sectarian war that could outlast even Assad? In addition to the sectarian dynamic between the, the uh, largely Alawite uh, government and the uh, largely Sunni majority of the country that's fighting him, you've got this within the opposition, this very potentially deadly conflict that's developing between the more Islamist elements and the less Islamist elements. So I, one shudders to think what will happen when Bashar al-Assad is no longer there, and then it just becomes a pure struggle for power. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, you know, we should never forget whose fault this conflict is. This is Bashar al-Assad's war that he started against his own people who were doing nothing but peacefully protesting uh, against a tyrannical regime. Uh, and the fact that it's turned into this nightmare 
that you know everyone is you know as worried of the, about the regime as they're worried about the opposition is only the fault of Bashar al-Assad and his minions who refuse to take any smart moves uh, throughout a, a year and a half of conflict. There are opposition activists who are reporting the use of poison gas, uh, that the government of Syria is using poison gas against its enemies. Have you heard of any such thing or been able to confirm it? I mean, it's impossible to confirm something like that. I heard something like that. I saw horrible video footage of people who had suffered allegedly by this uh, 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 poison gas. Um, That's a really ominous development because I don't think that Bashar al-Assad himself would decide to use poison gas. I don't think it's, you know, the regime's decision. It would just not make any sense for them to cross that line in, in such a lame little way, you know, using it against a small group of people. Um, what it suggests is a very terrifying possibility that these chemical weapons, chemical agents are falling into the hands of Bashar al-Assad's death squads, and they're using it whether they're getting orders to use them or not. And we know, by the way, that that was a red line. The use of chemical weapons was a red line, part of the red line drawn by President Obama. Um, we don't know, as you said, if these reports are credible, but I wonder if there is a feeling on the ground of how much it would take before President Obama were to take some specific action. I think among the diplomats and experts that I talked to, if Bashar al-Assad started firing chemical weapons in you know, warheads or Scud missiles or something like that, that would definitely be a red line. Uh, using poison to uh, attack people, uh, maybe that's not such an explicit use of what the the president meant by the use of chemical weapons by the regime. Thank you very much, Borzu Dirgahi of the Financial Times, speaking to us from Beirut, Lebanon. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. We're going to take a moment now to remember an art dealer from Aleppo, Syria. He's a man who amassed the world's most valuable collections of modern art. Giuseppe Nama died last month at the age of 80. Nahmad and his brothers are credited with transforming the art market. Godfrey Barker is an international art market expert. He is now in the Pyrenees. You didn't call him Giuseppe Nahmad. What was the name that you knew him by? Everyone knew him as Joe Namad, the eldest of three brothers who grew up in the Middle East, um, came to Italy, and have been based in Monte Carlo, London, and New York in that order for the last 30 years. And Giuseppe himself, or Joe, was basically the king of the art world. Can you tell us what made him the, the head of the family empire and such a pivotal figure in art marketing? Joe and the Neymar brothers have sat in the front row at Sotheby's and Christie's and Phillips for the last 35 years, and they have been the world's most important dealers in Impressionist, but especially 20th century art. They were important because they've been market makers and market operators, but uniquely so because they have amassed as private people a collection of Picassos, Modigliani's, Miro's, Bacon's, the major 20th century painters that no other art dealer has begun to approach. So how did he do it and how did they do it? Well, the start for Joe was in Milan 50 years ago when he was friends with the artists. And he bought them when they were completely out of fashion. And they held it for 50, 60 years to this day so that they now have a collection of 800 to 1,000 paintings, a collection that is worth 20 to 50 million a picture 
as opposed to the 500 to $2,000 that they were routinely paying in the 50s and 60s. Um, Joe himself, I should say, is a man who not only held on to art, but held on to everything. He lived in a single room in Monte Carlo, just 20-foot square. The room was piled high with jams and little jars of honey taken from the breakfast tables at the hotels he stayed in. On the floor, there were catalogues and paperwork, but this lonely man, um, very much a recluse, lived and breathed art 24 hours of the day. He did, in his early life, act out the flamboyant playboy in Milan, but somehow got that out of his system by the age of 30, and then switched overnight to being the simplest super-rich man you have ever come across. We know that he was at least suspected of currency violations and investigated. In in your view, from your own reporting, do you believe he was on the up-and-up? I do not know, Lisa. We're talking here about the most secretive family in the art business. Um, charming, yes, friendly to all who approach them, but very tough businessmen and the keepers of many secrets, um, the biggest of all exactly what they're holding in Geneva and in London after 50 years of dealing. What's the uh, lasting impact that Giuseppe Namad had on the art market? I mean, what do we see of that today? Joe Namad bought the 20th century art market at a time when the world's museums were facing the other way. It now seems natural to think that Picasso was the most important artist of the 20th century, but as late as 1950, even 1960, that was a controversial statement. The Namads had no hesitation. They believed in the painters they grew up with in Italy and France completely. They bought them. They bought from the artists. Joe Namad knew Picasso. They paid very good prices, but they didn't buy to slip. They bought in order to hold what they've got, with the result that they have an unequaled private collection. Godfrey Barker is an international art market expert. We spoke with him about the art dealer Giuseppe Namad, or Joe Namad, who is dead at the age of 80. In South Korea today, a small group of activists celebrated Christmas in their preferred way. They lit up a tower shaped like a Christmas tree right on the border of North Korea. Pyongyang responded by calling it psychological warfare. The provocative tree lighting is a kind of annual event. But most people in South Korea have a different way of marking the holiday. Christmas there is more a romantic day for couples than a religious or family celebration. So to help Korean singles feel a little bit less lonely, organizers have set up a series of mass blind dates across the country. Jason Struther has dropped in on one gathering in Seoul. Song Won Jae says he is feeling lucky. The 24-year-old just got out of the army and says it's time to find a girlfriend. He's not asking for too much. I hope I can meet someone with a good mind, he says, and I know it's a small chance, but I hope she's Christian too. My parents would like that since my dad is a pastor. Song is just one of a thousand or so singles who braved sub-freezing temperatures in Seoul to join a Christmas Eve dating flash mob. Available women came to Yoido Park wearing something red, the guys something white. 
They used coded phrases to let each other know who was on the market. Song, who's sporting a white hoodie, let me in on the lingo. Are you here to go for a walk? Do you want to go for a walk with me, he says. I remember good. <laughs> for a flash mob, there was a bit of stage managing going on. Organizers had the men stand on one side of the park, women on the other, and then the two sides converged. I lost Song in the sea of people. The flash mob and other dating events spread across social media here. And in a country where almost everyone uses a smartphone, news of events like these travels fast. Yu Taehyung came up with the idea for the mass blind dates. He says he's surprised how much attention it got in both social and traditional media. I created a Facebook dating site to help me get over my own breakup a few months ago, Yu says. But then I posted that we should have one giant dating event for Christmas, and it just took off from there. Yu says he thinks the mass blind dates were so popular because being single on Christmas is just boring. TV networks play the same movies like Home Alone every year, and people would much rather go out on dates for the holiday. Back at Yoido Park, the crowd shouts "kiss" at a young man and woman who seem to have hit it off. But after I find Song Won Jae, he tells me it wasn't his lucky day after all. He asked four different girls to take a walk with him, but they all said no thanks. He attributes some of it to an overwhelming gender disparity that was not in his favor. Yeah, it is too bad there were so many guys here, he says. But all I can do is keep trying. But he's not going to let it ruin his Christmas. Song says he'll probably just end up watching Home Alone on television, like he does every year. For the world, I'm Jason Struther in Seoul. I want to remind you to take the world with you as you travel around this holiday season. You can now flip through our features and explore the issues of the day on the popular Flipboard app. Download the app for your iPad, iPhone, or Android device at flipboard.com/theworld. This is PRI. The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to healthcare through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report online at MedtronicFoundation.org, and by Focus Features, presenting the new film Promised Land, starring Matt Damon and John Krasinski, from the director of Goodwill Hunting, in select theaters Friday. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The National Rifle Association's Wayne LaPierre continued his effort to oppose gun regulations and to install armed security guards in U.S. schools. LaPierre spoke yesterday on NBC's Meet the Press. He trumpeted what he said was Israel's model for dealing with school violence. He claimed that Israel had, quote, a whole lot of school shootings until they did what the NRA is advocating, putting security guards at schools. Some Israelis have called the comment ludicrous. Foreign Ministry spokesman Yigal Palmore said that there was no series of attacks at schools and the security has been beefed up over the years to deal with terrorism, not with senseless shootings. Joining us now is Gerald Steinberg, who is a professor of political science and international relations at Bar-Ilan University near Tel Aviv. Professor Steinberg, first tell us, as you drop off your child at school in Israel, is there a security guard standing by or anywhere near? There have been periods where every school did have a security guard, and it was precisely because of terror attacks that took place in the period of 2001 to 2004 and 5, 
where there were bombings and attacks in restaurants, on buses. Occasionally, schools would be targeted, or nothing comparable to what we saw tragically in Connecticut. But I think the comparison to the United States just doesn't stand ground. Why do you think it doesn't stand ground? We're dealing with terrorism. It can be predicted. It can be dealt with. We're not talking about random people with psychological issues that are able to get uh, weapons quite easily. We're not talking about Israelis attacking Israelis. So the, the differences there are so, so very clear that I'm surprised that somebody would make that analogy, make that comparison. So what does it matter, though, if an armed guard is trying to stop a terrorist or an armed civilian who may or may not have some kind of mental disability? In the Israeli case, it began with parents taking turns at the entrance to schools to serve as a means of warning, primarily for the purpose not of engaging in gun battles with terrorists, but rather to provide a crucial couple of minutes of early warning and perhaps to serve as some sort of deterrent that if somebody came in, they knew that they wouldn't be able to just charge right into the school and start shooting, but rather would have to deal with a little bit of uh, defense, a little bit of, of a barrier on the way. And that was the logic. It wasn't always convincing. But Israeli felt that was at least doing something. And in terms of, of, of whether an armed guard is trying to stop a terrorist or armed civilian, are you saying that you haven't had to worry about armed civilians or that for some reason the terrorist threat is much worse? I mean, what is the difference? We don't have situations in Israel or in most countries where you have someone from your own society coming in, people who are mentally unstable, having access to these kinds of very deadly weapons. It just doesn't happen. The question is, what sort of uh, threat are you facing? Like in any other situation, you look at the threat, you analyze it on a society-wide basis, and you find the appropriate solution. If there is no real threat of um, individuals, terrorists, or others coming into schools and, and killing children, you don't need to have that kind of barrier system outside. Uh, the United States is clearly in a different situation. It needs to deal with it differently. But uh, I think it's very hard to imagine that would be a situation outside the United States. Gerald Steinberg is a political science professor at Bar-Ilan University near Tel Aviv. Nice to speak with you. Thank you very much. Today in Israel, a group of Christians is celebrating the birth of Jesus, but they're celebrating in a relatively new way. They're doing it in modern Hebrew. The world's Matthew Bell has visited a community of Hebrew-speaking Catholics. Like his fellow Jews during the first century, Jesus of Nazareth spoke Aramaic. One of the dialects of Aramaic is Syriac. It went on to become an important language for Christianity in the region. But Hebrew, which comes from the same linguistic family as Aramaic, was never adopted by the church. That only happened after the founding of the state of Israel in 1948. <laughs> Members of the Catholic Association of St. James attended Mass this week at a Franciscan monastery in West Jerusalem. This is one of four Hebrew-speaking Catholic congregations in Israel. The association was founded in 1955 as waves of Jewish immigrants from Europe came to the Jewish state in the years after the Holocaust. Among them, in some cases, says Father David Neuhaus, were their Catholic relatives. Very often the model being a pious Catholic wife married to a very secular Jewish man. Sometimes they would have had their children baptized on the insistence of the Catholic spouse. Moving to Israel, the Catholic spouse goes out to look for a church. But the language in churches of the Holy Land at the time was usually Arabic. 
In addition to the language barrier, there was a political divide between Israelis and Arabs, so the Vatican recognized the need for a Hebrew-speaking association of Catholics in Israel. Neuhaus says the community received special permission to celebrate parts of the Mass in Hebrew at a time when Catholics in the rest of the world did so only in Latin. Because the Vatican recognized that Hebrew too is a sacred language. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Of course, it's a bit of a game because for us, it is a sacred language, but that's our vernacular. So that, in fact, we were praying in the vernacular long before many other Catholics were praying in the vernacular. In the 1970s and 80s, this minority in Israel got even smaller. Many Hebrew-speaking Catholics assimilated into mainstream Israeli society and drifted away from the church. Father Neuhaus, himself a Jewish convert to Catholicism, says the community numbered in the thousands in the 1950s, and by 1990 it was only about 200 people. But then immigrants from the former Soviet Union began to settle in Israel. They claimed Jewish ancestry, but some identified as Catholics, so the Catholic community in Israel grew. Neuhaus says the last decade has seen more growth, with foreign workers coming to Israel from places like the Philippines and asylum seekers from African countries along with their children. Finally, there are Palestinian Christians from Israeli Arab towns who've settled in Jewish centers. Neuhaus says it's hard to come up with an accurate number of Hebrew-speaking Catholics in Israel today. We are a small group if you're thinking of the people who regularly attend liturgical services in our communities. I would say that we're around 600 people in the whole country. But if you take into consideration the population of Catholics living within Hebrew-speaking Israeli Jewish society, we can go into the tens of thousands. Neuha says one of the challenges of being Catholic in Hebrew has been to invent a vocabulary. Take the words mass, trinity, and transubstantiation, for example. These aren't found in Jewish tradition. Even the word for the name of Jesus was problematic. If you go around in the streets of Israel and you talk about that man from Nazareth, the word that is used is not his name, but an acronym, an abbreviation of a very polemical curse against him. Yeshu is an acronym for, may his name and his memory be erased. Neuhaus says Catholics insist on using the Hebrew name Yehoshua for Jesus, and in fact he's noticed that it's started to catch on among Israelis. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Jerusalem. This is The World on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on The World, more protests in India over the gang rape of a young woman on a city bus. And the origins of Christmas dinner just might go back to a pagan ritual. Mithraism with its uh, idea of a communal meal seems to have uh, some similarities with Christianity. 
ERI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH in Boston. Authorities in India blocked main roads into New Delhi today. They were trying to prevent more protests over the gang rape of a 23-year-old medical student. The woman was attacked last week on a public bus. A male friend who was with her was badly beaten. Over this past weekend, thousands of people converged outside the prime minister's office and other government buildings to express their outrage. Nilanjana Roy is a freelance journalist who is based in New Delhi. I know that you were there to witness the demonstrations over the weekend. Could you describe the scene and tell us who the protesters were and why they came out in such large numbers? It seemed to be a spontaneous gathering of students There were initially about 2,000 or so, then the crowd swelled to about 5,000 and then 10,000. And for fully about the first day, it remained that way, a strong student protest, spontaneous, with a lot of very, very angry young adults coming out onto the street, trying to articulate uh, several strands. Some wanted death penalty for the rapists because they were so upset at the brutality of this particular crime. Others wanted an end to the kind of rise in sexual violence that we've seen against women. And a lot of the young men who were there, they wanted no part of the rape culture. They were there to stand up and say, we are not rapists. Maybe give us an idea of one conversation that you had with with a particular protester. There were two that stand out in my memory. One was with a young girl who just said, what we really want changed is uh, the right to be out on the roads, to be safe. We want to feel that we have the right to move around with freedom. Another girl said, never again. We don't ever want to wake up in the morning and hear that one of us has been brutalized in this fashion. I wonder if you can explain, though, why it is that there is such a widespread outrage over this particular incident. We understand that rape and other kinds of sexual harassment are really fairly common in India, especially in New Delhi, in the capital city. There are about 600 cases this past year alone. So what has happened now to galvanize so many people to come out and protest? One, I think there's been a rising awareness and a rising anger about the extent of sexual violence. It's something that affects people's daily lives in Delhi at a level that uh, perhaps is hard to explain. If you have to think every time that you go out of the house about whether you're wearing the appropriate things or whether you'll be blamed if anything happens. If on a daily basis you're dealing with not just threats of rape, but... um, constant harassment. Is that is it, that really the case? I think that's pretty common, unfortunately. You know, we manage to live very normal lives. But uh, there is something about the situation in large parts of North India that makes women feel extremely unsafe. And this crime particularly, it was horrifying, some of the details that came out, what had been done to that girl. They, they came at the end of a year when we've had worse and worse news A young woman was attacked and killed in Bombay by a security guard. There's been a lot more awareness of the risk that uh, young women take every day. But in addition to that, there's another undercurrent. This rape in particular has also caught the imagination because the victim is blameless. She was out on her own at a reasonably early hour of the night. 
Uh, she'd just gone to see a movie and she was being attacked by complete strangers. We should say also there's an issue of police and how they traditionally have reacted to cases such as this. I think that was one of the flashpoints again for the students definitely on the first day. A lot of the young women and men were saying, we don't want to be afraid when we step into a police station. We want to feel that we can go up to a policeman and be taken seriously. There was um, a fairly significant report carried by a mainstream magazine called Tehelka, where they interviewed officials of the Delhi police. And it was horrifying to hear police officials say on record that they felt that women were to blame for rapes, that these were just women protesting after they'd had consensual sex. Can you describe what's going on there with that train of thought? I don't think the police are acting in isolation. I think they definitely reflect a wider misogyny. The attitude that a woman is to blame if she's raped, that somehow it's her fault if she goes out or there's something wrong with what she was wearing, what she was doing, who she was with. In this case, the Delhi police did act fairly fast. Uh, They did their best to catch the rapists. It's just that people feel that in most of the cases, uh, the process of reporting a rape can be as traumatic as the crime itself. Does it feel, though, like a turning point right now? I think we've hit a boiling point. I would like to hope that this will start at least an urban women's rights movement. And definitely the kind of conversations that have opened up in the wake of this are intense. This has brought a lot of things to our head. But we need, I'd like to see more consistent change. I hope that we don't just drop the issue and move on to something else. Because the fact is that the problem of sexual violence in India, it isn't going away. And the more we start talking about it and assess the dimensions of it, we have a better chance of ensuring that something like this doesn't happen again, or if it does, that it's dealt with better. Nilajana Roy is a freelance journalist reporting on the protests in the wake of a gang rape of a 23-year-old woman in India. Nilajana joined us from her home in New Delhi. Thank you. You're welcome. Our compass points north for today's GeoQuiz. The place we're looking for is the northernmost region of Atlantic Canada. Portuguese explorer João Fernandes Lavrador first mapped these shores back in the 15th century. The region is just north of Quebec and across the Strait of Belle Isle. Several indigenous groups still live here, including the Inuit and the Innu. Winters up near the Arctic Circle can be pretty harsh, and Arctic tribes depend on caribou or reindeer for food and warmth. They will use the milk from the reindeer, which is incredibly nutritious. And they will also obviously eat the meat, kill reindeer for meat, and they will make clothing out of the fur. It is an ancient tradition, but one that's threatened as development in the Arctic thins the reindeer herds. We're going to hear more about that worrying trend in a few minutes. First, name this northernmost region of Atlantic Canada, if you can. And here's another riddle for you. What centuries-old religion celebrates the birth of its spiritual leader on December 25th? Your first and only clue. It has rituals that include baptism and the breaking of bread. Okay, you get credit for guessing Christianity, but if you guessed Mithraism, double credit. Mithraism is a mysterious ancient Roman cult that predated Christianity. In Rome, there are thought to be dozens of ruins of temples to the god of Mithras. The largest temple has just reopened to the public after years of restoration work, and Megan Williams recently paid a visit. 
This temple of Mithras lies underneath Rome's sprawling Caracalla baths, and according to guide Teresa Di Iorio, it's no ordinary house of Mithrian worship. This is the biggest, largest Mithraeum they founded in Rome, and is the only one where they found the Fossa Sanguinis. Diorio is standing under the vaulted ceiling of a cold marble room that was once accessed through a secret side entrance in the baths above. A delicate black and white mosaic spreads across the floor. Along the walls are raised platforms for the men who once reclined there while banqueting. Archaeologists say this was one of Rome's most important temples of Mithras, the ancient Persian god worshipped in Rome between the 2nd and 4th centuries. Mithraism was a male-only fertility cult that stressed secrecy and loyalty, a kind of ancient macho version of a Masonic cult or a frat. And in the middle of the room is the Fossa Sanguinis, our guide mentioned. A large pit that, with a sacrificed bull, was gruesomely central to a new member's initiation. So he would walk he in would there. Walk in. And what's, what's his first initiation step? His first step uh, was uh, the bath into icy water. And then the second uh, step was uh, walking over a very hot a piece of marble and then after this he was probably naked he was going down into this hole let's say and up on top this hole was covered with the grill and on top of the grill they killed the bull that's when the cult's new members would be showered by the bull's dripping blood not far from the bull pit is an ancient sculpture of Mithras holding a globe, his head missing, likely lopped off later by Christians who were no fans of his cult. Historian Olivia Ercoli says Mithras is always depicted looking up towards his guiding planet, the sun. But below, things get a little unpleasant. And below him are different animals. Usually you have a dog and there's a snake licking up the blood of the bull and a uh, scorpion who is uh, clutching at the bull's testicles. So <laughs> that uh, would be how Mithraism explained the passage of evil into the world. The issue of where evil comes from was one early Christians grappled with, too. The jury's out on whether Christianity snuffed out Mithraism or whether the cult simply faded on its own. But Ercoli says many rites and rituals of Mithraism were likely folded into Christianity. Among them, December 25th as the birth of its leader and the Eucharist. Mithraism with its uh, idea of uh, communal meal seems to have uh, some similarities with Christianity. Uh, early Christians used to meet up in what was known as the agape, a sort of banquet of love. Uh, this has something in common with the idea of sharing food that the Mithraic followers used to observe. Among other things for Christians to be thankful for this December 25th is the fact that a shared meal, rather than a shower in bull's blood, is the tradition that's withstood the test of time. For The World, I'm Megan Williams in Rome.
If you hear someone talking about a reindeer this time of year, chances are pretty good it's the red-nosed one. But Jonathan Mazower would like to remind you that reindeer play an important role in the lives of northern indigenous people. Mazower is with the organization Survival International, and he spoke with my colleague Marco Werman about the reindeer herding tribes such as the Innu in northeastern Canada. Well, they live in the subarctic and Arctic. And for those peoples, um, the reindeer uh, or the caribou, as it's known in North America, it's a crucial part both of their livelihoods and of their culture. And we thought it was right at this time of year to remind people that, you know, the reindeer is not just a mythical animal. It's a real creature that plays an absolutely vital part in the lives of many of the world's tribal and indigenous peoples. And which cultures are we talking about? Well, we're talking about in North America, uh, people like the Innu in Labrador and Quebec, and many other Indian peoples who live in the Northwest Territories in Canada and uh, the Northern Territories. And then the reindeer also, of course, is spread throughout Northern Europe in places like Finland and Norway, and also across Siberia. Now, the relationship is so close that one way of monitoring the state of uh, the indigenous people of the Arctic, I gather, is to monitor uh, the reindeer herd. So where are the largest herds of reindeer? Well, the largest herd, at any rate until a few years ago, was actually in the northeast of Canada, ranging across northern Quebec and Labrador. This herd was called the George River Herd, and at its peak numbered about 900,000 animals. It Mm. was absolutely vast. But its numbers have been dropping very fast and very dramatically. The indigenous people who have hunted it and revered it in their mythology and their religion, they are pretty clear as to why this is happening. Uh, They say it's because there's a big wave of industrialization going on. There are mining projects, there's hydroelectric schemes, there are road building projects. And the Innu, for example, say that, you know, this is why this herd is declining so dramatically. Well, listeners, if you were paying attention to Jonathan Mazower's last answer, you heard a Labrador. That is the answer to the GeoQuiz today in northeast Canada. I wonder if uh, in your time there you were able to kind of witness anything that illustrates uh, how hardwired that relationship is between the Innu and the, the reindeer. I mean, did you attend any reindeer rituals important to the Innu? Well, yes. I mean, anyone who has spent time with the Innu out in the country will know that caribou during the winter especially is a very important source of food. And you will also notice when a caribou or reindeer is killed, the antlers of the animal are not discarded, although they're obviously inedible, but they are placed very respectfully in a tree. They're not allowed to touch the ground. It's a mark of the kind of symbiotic relationship that the Innu see themselves as having with the caribou. As one man in Siberia told you, uh, the reindeer is our home, our food, our warmth and our transportation. So pretty crucial. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, there are plenty of peoples, especially in Siberia, who still make their clothing from the reindeer skin. You know, this isn't even just food. It is much more than that. Uh, This isn't something that belongs in the past. It's very much a part of a living way of life and obviously, therefore, ought to be treated with some respect. What does a glass of uh, fresh reindeer milk taste like? I've never had reindeer milk myself, I have to say, but its fat content, I believe, is 
something like five times greater than that of cow's milk. <laughs> so wow. I think it probably tastes pretty good. It'll make a killer ice cream, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Mazower of Survival International, thank you very much. Thank you. You can see some stunning photos of reindeer and the people who build their lives around the wild herds. They're at theworld.org. Our global hits coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Coming up, a troubling development for boys' choirs. But first, we remember an American veteran of the Spanish Civil War. James Bonet belonged to a group of U.S. volunteers who were known as the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. In the 1930s, they went to Spain to fight the fascist forces of Generalissimo Franco. James Bonet was one of the brigade's last surviving members. He died this month at the age of 98. Benet spoke to the world's Monica Campbell in California this past summer. He told her he never questioned his decision to fight. If the moment comes when it's the obvious right thing and somebody's got to do it, maybe it's going to be you. In 1937, Benet was a journalist in New York when he decided to take up arms in Spain. After he arrived, he faced aerial bombing. What is it like to be bombed? scary. You know, you lie flat, hope that the fragments will go over you. I mean, in my case, at least they did. <laughs> Benet served as an ambulance driver in the war. Other volunteers, shopkeepers from Brooklyn, mill workers, became combatants overnight. And of course, some of them adopted the uh, soldier's life as if they were born to it. Fortunately, I was in pretty good physical shape. And some of the others just had a terrible time. You had these strange experiences with guys, you know, the toughest guys you'll ever meet, and they turned out to be quite chicken. I've seen a guy's hair turn white, <laughs> and the strangest thing in the world. Back in New York, Benet organized talks about Spain and what was happening elsewhere in Europe. We tried to explain, sure, you're not interested in politics, but politics is going to be interested in you. Even young men who were going to be drafted, a lot of these guys just didn't have the faintest idea what was going on. During the Cold War, he and his fellow vets were labeled as communists. He was called to testify before Congress, but Benet said in the end, it didn't matter. I always felt that I was on the right side of history in Spain, yes, sure. That was James Benet, one of the last U.S. surviving veterans of the Spanish Civil War. He died this month at the age of 98. You can hear Monica Campbell's original story about Benet at theworld.org. And finally, we head into the holiday with a story about choral music and boys' voices. Here's the world's Patrick Cox. At this time of year, you often hear this kind of music. Handel's Messiah. For unto us a child is born. It's performed here by the New College Choir, one of Britain's best-known boy choirs. Now, the boys singing here are roughly 12 years old. When they get a bit older, well, they'll sound more like this. But when exactly do their voices break? It's an inexact science. You see, a boy's voice doesn't suddenly break. It goes through approximately five stages of change that correspond with other known changes of puberty. And all of those stages are just coming sooner. 
This is Martin Ashley, who heads the education department at Britain's Edge Hill University. When he says the onset of puberty is coming at a younger age, well, that's nothing new. We already know that. But Ashley goes further. He's just completed a study of boys' voices that suggests something dramatic has been happening in recent decades. Ashley tested the voices of 1,000 boys in Britain and Germany and compared them to similar tests done in 1960. What we would have seen in 1960 in 14-year-olds, we're seeing now in 12-year-olds. Seeing, and more to the point, hearing. Ashley says if this trend continues and boys' voices keep breaking at younger ages then teenage boys' choirs won't have anyone to sing the soprano parts. Choir directors like the new college's Edward Higginbottom are already accounting for these changes. Yes, we do recruit younger, um, and we give ourselves a little more time than we used to. Um, That's certainly true. But Higginbottom disagrees that this change is quite so recent and sudden. He says the age at which boys' voices have been breaking has been gradually, very slowly, coming down for hundreds of years. I mean, over the centuries, it really has dropped. You know, you can find evidence in the 17th century for boys' voices continuing until 20. You know that wonderful song, Sweet Polly Oliver, of that girl who infiltrates the, uh, the army to follow her, her, her boy, as it were? She cut her hair close and she stained her face brown and went for a soldier to fair London town. Now, how could it happen, asked Higginbottom, that a girl could possibly get away with masquerading as a male soldier? There's only one explanation. Well, those young men were teenagers with piping treble voices, not a hair on their chin. Okay, so that's anecdotal. But there's plenty of evidence from previous centuries suggesting that boys' voices stayed higher for longer. Johann Sebastian Bach wrote music to be performed by boy sopranos and altos in their mid to late teens. But researcher Martin Ashley says that doesn't prove anything. Now, it's interesting, a lot of people mention about Bach's boy sopranos I'm almost certain that you would have found medically they were hitting puberty at around 14 or 15, but there are singing techniques that I'm sure Bach would have used that allow their voices to continue up to 16, 17. This is a star of the new college choir, John T. Ward, in a recent recording. Uh, John T. was 13 when he did that. Which may mean that he's now close to the end of his soprano career. And when Ward's musical director, Edward Higginbottom, is asked to imagine a future scenario, he doesn't believe that 11, 12, 13-year-olds will have lost their soprano voices. He offers this revolutionary thought. Well, if the window gets so tight that uh, you can't do anything, if we have boy basses at the age of 10, I mean, clearly it's a wonderful (laughs) occasion for the girls to stride in and and help us. Girls? In a boys' choir? What's the world coming to? Next, they'll be playing soccer. For The World, I'm Patrick Cox.
We go out today on Haydn's Nelson Mass, sung by the choir of New College, Oxford. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios, I'm Lisa Mullins. On behalf of all of us at the world, Merry Christmas. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.